Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. to All Power to Development. Let me wish you all a happy new year. Um, thank you to uh, to all, those of you who've been listening last year. Um, we so appreciate your support. I am the leader of education and research at the Eastside Institute and a professor of education at Rutgers University. And I am very excited to have my good friend and colleague, Beth Fairholt, here with me today. Hi, Beth. Hi. Beth is an associate professor of early childhood and art education at Brooklyn College and a member of the, facu- of the faculty of urban education at the CUNY Grad Center. Um, and she has also collaborated for many years, really since her doctoral years, with the Laboratory of Comparative Human Cognition at the University of California at San Diego. And she is a pioneer in developing and studying Play worlds, which is what we're going to be talking quite a bit about today. So again, welcome, Beth. Um, Beth and I have been friends and colleagues for almost two decades, and um, well, when we were very, very young and brand new scholars. And um, I think, Beth, I'd say that we were drawn to each other in part because of how seriously we both took the value of play in the lives of children and adults, and, and that we, we both saw play as a critical to people of all ages leading joyful and developmental lives in our crazy mixed up world. Um, so that's, that's what I think is sort of the roots of us. Um, what about you? What, what, what about you for? Yeah, for I, just, I just add that I was always thought of you as a mentor in showing me how to play in the academy. So when I met you, mm-hmm. I was I was switching from being a preschool teacher to being, I think of myself as a researcher as a child, a researcher as a teacher, and now a researcher based in the academy. But when I was making that that switch, I was trying to understand the game of how language works in the academy. Mm-hmm. And you were the person who really showed me that you could be playful in the academy. And that really helped me to stay. I remember once um I was trying to use the word love in a presentation and I felt very um, disheartened by the reception. And you just said, keep at it, keep playing with <laughs> the words that are joyful for you. That's cool. Cause I, I hope we'll come back around to love. Cause I think it's something we both feel um, unashamed about its importance in, in learning and development um, and especially in schools and universities, which are often places that people feel like they have to keep their emotions somewhat at bay. So hopefully we'll circle back around to that. Um, So as I said in my introduction, you are a pioneer in developing and studying play worlds. And and I thought actually, I wanted to kind of, we've been talking about play worlds again for probably close to those two decades. I thought I'd give you my description of it 
Um, and then we can riff off of that. And, and obviously you can at the end of that say, no, 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 that's not what it is at all. Um, or you can be like, well, that's interesting. You see it that way. You know, let me um, let me, you know, add to that. So my understanding is play worlds is it, it really is what it says. It's the creating, if you will, of a world through play um, and of a of a yeah, of a world through play. And it's a relatively new form of adult child joint play right so play where adults and children are are creating something together they're actively enter into the fantasy play of young children as a way of promoting the development and quality of life for both the adults and the children so those are some of your words um the first play world i remember learning about i think was from your dissertation and it took place on a in a public school on a military base um and if, what I what really what I understood about it was that a class of first graders, their teacher and you and your fellow researchers created a long term, many months, multiple months, imaginary world in the classroom, inspired by the book, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And that this imaginary world would really combine the adult real life experiences, their ability to if you will, instigate such a thing to conceptualize it, to use art and, and language and literacy to create it together with what we know is children's amazing skill at imagination, creating imaginary worlds, living in them, bringing their emotionality and their relationality to it. And that together they created this world that allowed everyone to develop emotionally and socially and academically. Um, so I see it as it, it's this, it's been different in different moments and different places in the world, but it's, it shares that quality of adults and children playing together to create an imaginary world within which they can grow and develop and transform. That's, that's how I see it. Um, what, what do you think of that description description and, um, and, I guess why, like why, why do that? And, and what, what, what has led you to that, to that place? Yeah, thank you. That's, that's great. So I, I should say first that I, I, um, I think of myself as a scientist and I, I really believe in peer review and I believe in writing things down and citing people. <laughs> and uh, I'm not talking now from a PowerPoint and I'm going to say things on this podcast that, that I'm thinking about, and I might say we, and we might mean me and a puppet. It might not mean me and my research group. So I'll just I'll just <laughs> say that it's a caveat. <laughs> this wonderful series that I'm so honored to be a part of. I really, it's really exciting for me. So um, that's all entirely accurate, and the the shift that I think that um, I think that it is with my colleagues, but that we're we're I'll say we ambiguously we're taking now is we've focused on play for two decades and now we're really focusing on the world so we're thinking of play worlds as a way of being and um we had thought of the world as having these imaginary characters that were helping the adults and children to communicate with each other but now we're we're thinking of the imaginary characters as um full actors 
with mm-hmm. us. And that that shift has been really powerful in the past few years. And that came about from a, um, a research trip uh, on a sabbatical year to Japan, where there's some amazing people. I think we we have to put the names of everyone somehow in the description of this, but but um, they're doing some research there with with um, people who have dementia, and that really, by shifting from thinking about children and adults to adults with dementia and adults without dementia, it sort of allowed me to think about who else we're including in these play worlds and what mm-hmm. what, what makes them a way of being. But everything you said is, is um, yeah, completely accurate. Well, let's, um, I, I definitely want to pursue this new path, but maybe for our, for our audience, let's help them catch up a little bit with us. Yeah, and and, say, and then, say- especially the work around dementia is, of course, of great interest given we've had previous podcasts of people using improvisation and play and reimagining dementia. So what's, I definitely want to go there. It's one of the things I'm very interested in. I'll say say one, one other thing that might be interesting for this series is that um, the work of Vera John Steiner is very important to us and this idea of creative collaborations. And so when I left being a preschool teacher rather abruptly and switched to being um, a researcher based in the academy, what struck me is that my questions didn't change. And that made me think that my questions hadn't actually changed when I switched from being a child to being a teacher in a preschool. And then it seemed to be a question of why we're not collaborating, finding ways to collaborate with researchers in the field who are teachers and children, and it turns out also the imaginary characters who who populate preschools and centers for people with dementia. And and, and with the people with dementia, it's people from the past, sometimes not um, so imaginary from the past in that sense. But anyhow, that idea of partnering, even when it's hard to speak to someone across Mm. the lines in a creative endeavor, is really partly what's driving play world. So it's when we say it's for the child and adult development, it's really thinking like, how can I, how can I work with a child who doesn't have language right. as a co-scientist? And so in that way, we also have a lot in common with Reggio Emilia, the um ways mm. that early childhood is working. Not I would say how that works in Italy and in Sweden and less so in the United States, but this idea that children are really capable scientists who whose perspective in development it's crazy to think that we could understand life development without talking to the people who exist in the beginning uh-huh. when we forget the beginning or exist in the end how can we understand what happens in the middle that's partly what Vygotsky's told us and how do in your experience and maybe you could give an example of this how does creating these imaginary worlds and imaginary characters and fully investing in them, right? Give, as both the children, the teachers, the researchers, and the imaginary characters as full partners in creating that world. How does that help what you're describing? How does that create, if you will, what I would use the word an ensemble, right? How does that create an ensemble in which everybody is included? There isn't some bar you have to you know, pass to be able to be included. How has that looked or how has that evolved 
in Play Worlds? Was it there from the beginning? Well, very, we're working from Ganilla Lindqvist's work, which is from um, the 80s and 90s in Sweden and continuing today. And that was our original inspiration, as well as Pentihakarainen in Finland. And Ganilla Lindqvist wrote beautifully in her dissertation about the ways that the teachers are seen in the eyes of the children as whole people in play worlds. Mm. And that's really important to me, like without essentializing what a whole person is, the ways that we tell teachers who want to start play worlds, the ways that we tell them to start include include choosing a character they want to be that they want to be for their own most intense reasons. So you have to choose something that's going to push you in your in that core of yourself that bridges this artificial divide between life and work and between mm. self and the people you love and between yourself and, and inanimate objects and every every divide you can think of that core project that you know we're all developing we're all working on something so you have to to engage with the play world with that and what happens when you do that is you create a trick and i've written some about this with a um childhood friend of mine who's a philosopher um in a chapter that's about to come out, and we use the word of a teacher called the constant, uh, which means someone who you're depending on um, to sort of write your ship when you're tackling these really hard questions. But the basic idea is that you trick yourself so that when the child says something you don't want to hear, which is going to happen by definition, because they're going to say something that disrupts your adult world because they're in a child world, you have to be forced to stay. So it's like mm. an idea that you don't make a choice to stay because you're a moral human being. We're all going to run when we're scared. So we got to make something mm -hmm. that's more powerful than our fear. And the teachers talk about fear of chaos. Cross-culturally, they use the word chaos without our introducing it. They see the room descending into chaos and they're scared, mm -hmm. but they continue partly because the researchers are supporting mm -hmm. them, it seems, but partly also because they have a goal that's so important to them, deep in their core, they want to stay in character. Even if the mm -hmm. room evolves into chaos, of course, with no one getting hurt because they're good, experienced teachers, they want to proceed. And that's how it happens. That's how you can keep talking. Because then when the child says something to you, the condition of, of not listening to them is that the world disappears, right? That's how play works, is that you all have to buy in. Otherwise, you have to leave because you're breaking the frame. So so hmm. that way you can keep listening to the children because you care more about your own development than you care about your fear of chaos. Huh. That's how it works, basically. Which I, I, Ganilla Lindquist didn't write all that. Yeah. But she definitely wrote the core of it when she had all these quotes from teachers saying, I think they see me as a person. They can't wait till I come back and I'm a whole person. Right. And I feel like that's so, I don't know, there's so much about what you just said that could be seen as important. And one is this this idea that it it for me, it breaks people. Seeing the teacher as a whole person changes everything because we've created these walls around school that don't allow for that. Um, so I just, I find that so interesting. But the thing about chaos, I'd love to 
go a little deeper into what, you know, a lot schools are designed to keep chaos at bay. That, that is, you know, the, the, the physical structure, the time element of the curriculum, everything. And you seem to, and I share this, you seem to value chaos as sort of critical to development. And I, I just, you know, what, what about it? And, and, and particularly in schools, what has it been like to bring a, a, an approach that in some ways gives people a way to handle chaos? Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Just say that the idea of the whole teacher and letting chaos in has to do with something that I was hoping would never be current as much as it is again right now. But this idea that queer people shouldn't be teachers. Mm-hmm. Well, I stopped teaching because I was fired from te- from teaching because I came out when I when I got married. I got domestic partnered, and I figured I couldn't hide my family life from my preschool mm-hmm. children. And partly, I think I'm not talking to education. I'm only talking to early childhood education and care, which I think of as very different. I really do believe that before six or seven at the beginning of life, you're engaged in this project of helping people want to be human beings by showing them joy and being human, and that that's possibly a different project as than education. So I'm not interested really in education. I'm interested in early childhood education and care, which I see as a different, a different project. And for that, you obviously have to be your whole self because what are you going to do? Show people they want to stay alive through all the despair and pain to do their profession. Most Mm -hmm. people wouldn't bother having a life. You have to show them that you're a whole person with great joy in breathing and eating and sleeping and loving your coworkers. That's how you show people let's engage Mm -hmm. in life at the start of life. And and I'm learning more about the end of life from my colleagues. I, I do think that there's, more appreciation of chaos at the beginning and end of life. Like when I'm with a young child or I'm with, um, we just spoke about our vacations and when I'm being with older people who have dementia, there's like, there's a sense of this beautiful space before and after being alive. I really do think that the chaos is the, I I see it as, as water and I think that our lives are just these mountains that stick out of the water for a little time. And they're all they're all rooted at the bottom of the ocean. So all I see is chaos. Like that question, mm-hmm. when I walk, mm-hmm. I just see, I live in New York City, but I just see chaos, right? I just see chaos. So I think it's more a question of this false um, setting where we say, no, you can't bring your whole self to this space. No, let's pretend that there isn't chaos. <laughs> Is that connected to the what you were saying about the move more recently to have play worlds in some ways focused on the world? It feels like there's a connection there. Virginia Woolf talks about the reality of the common life. And that's the switch that happened for me, partly in my work and partly as I hit middle age. I'm now 51. And when I turned about 46, which was the year that my... um how old my grandfather was when he committed suicide, which is a very shaping narrative in in my life in terms of my mom's recurring despair. I um 
I had a shift where I just thought, oh, it, yes, there are times of chaos and there's times of less chaos. But this whole idea that we think that it's either or or, or binary, this is something I really learned at the Laboratory of Comparative Human Cognition from Mike Cole, and it's to do with Vygotsky's theories. But um, that doesn't make sense. It, to me, it, it's all mediation. It's all chaos. It's all, yes, the island is there, but at the end of the day, the island's just a part of the bottom of the ocean that happens to be peaking up for a little ways which is beautiful. Oh. It makes us appreciate and see the ocean, but it's not it's not better or worse. And so the, the play world world, that's why we're calling it a way of being. Because when you enter that space, all of a sudden it doesn't matter anymore. Yes. So basically it's, it's keeping us focused on the, everyone says emotion, cognition, emotion, cognition, but to me it's the same. I used to think we have to bridge emotion, cognition. It's all emotion as far as I can tell. And what showed me this is that we had a child who had been, you know, not participating very much and then jumped in, so apparently not participating at all, and jumped in near the end of a play world started talking about ghosts when the play world was about trolls and the color of ghosts. And me and the teacher couldn't understand what was happening at all, but the children understood this other child. And this child became the teacher, took the child's seat and started asking questions of the children were asking them questions. They were answering about the color of ghosts. We didn't understand what they were talking. They were conversing in this language that was the real language about emotion. And that's what mm. the was about. And we adults had just thought it was about something other than emotion. <laughs> Great. Well, we're going to take a very short break and um, come back with Beth. Thanks. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. Welcome back, everybody. Um, I'm here with Beth Fairholt from Brooklyn College and the CUNY Grad Center, and we're talking about play worlds, uh, a, a, a form of adult-child play, education, sort of life, if you will, a form of what I'm beginning to hear it as is a form of life. Um, so we, we, just, we ended before the break you describing a little bit of... Um, what it means or what it's looked like to center, if you will, emotionality in the classroom or, um, yeah, to take seriously that we are emotional beings. Um, so I wondered if we could talk a little bit more about that, um, you know, given that schools are often places where emotions are where can be related to as problems to be solved, right? They're too intense. They're too this. We want to get children to control their emotions to 
um, master their emotions. So I wondered if you could say a little more of what that's what it's looked like and the power of centering emotions in play worlds. That's my language, not yours. Trying to walk the walk, right? Like we're trying mm-hmm. to walk the walk of bringing in our life and thinking about emotion. Um, the answer when you're in trauma is to listen to your body. Through the through the trauma work, you can see that you have to listen to your body. So when your mind isn't telling you that you're upset, like your body might have your heart racing and that's showing your emotion. So it's showing a, a reality. So, so what Vygotsky tells us is that reality and and fantasy are connected. This is the most exciting thing to me that I ever read. I read it when I was a teenager. Um, John Shatter gave me some to read and it, at, at Swarthmore when I was uh, um, 18, and it, it really changed me. So this, this, this idea that fantasy and reality aren't separated, which I had always suspected, right? <laughs> we, always, we all have always suspected, but, but I had as someone who worked a lot with young children, they just seemed to be onto something when they told me that the imaginary characters were really under the bed. Um, So that's from emotion, right? Like the way that we can tell that, and Vygotsky outlines three or four ways, depending on how you count them, that emotion connects fantasy and reality. But basically, you really have your body change when you feel an emotion. That means your emotions are, are real. And when the teachers in Playworld start to take their emotions seriously, like the best example was from the play world that you mentioned, Carrie, where this experienced teacher, firmly rooted in reality, experienced teacher, confessed to having left his car in the parking lot at like 5.30 at night, returned to the school, which was a little bit of a hike, re-exited through this imaginary portal just in case his wrong number of exits through this imaginary portal in his classroom to this imaginary world had allowed it to open so that the white witch who was in the world would follow him home, right? (laughs) And basically what he was doing was he was allowing his body and his mind and his way of being to recognize that his emotion of fear was real. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of what the what the chaos is. It's like the chaos of not having that division between emotion and reality, which of course, if you talk to an artist, they're like, duh, I make things out of my imagination and they become real all the time. But Mm -hmm. for those of us in schools, that's very hard. Hmm. Well, tell me if I'm making a leap, but you know, we've just, we are living through a period of perhaps heightened fear. Not that people don't have haven't had fears throughout human history. They have, but you know, the children you're talking about were going to school during the pandemic and there's, we could, we could list and I choose not to the endless intensifying fears that exist in the world. Has this have play worlds played a particular, have they been able to play a particular role? Do they sit with or sit next to those fears that the teachers and children and researchers were going through over the last two years. Um, So what happened at Playworlds is that we partner with artists who really lead us. And so after this one child started talking about the color of ghosts, the teachers had a shift in how they seemed to relate to reality and emotion. 
And they did a very strange thing in their school is that they went to the principal and they demanded that even if they didn't do play worlds and even if they all retired, the play world room would remain called the play world room. Hmm. This makes no sense. It's an irrational request. Uh, but they were also passionate, like almost all the kindergarten teachers in this school went to the principal and demanded this, all the ones who had been involved in the playroom. And the principal, who, you know, is a wonderful person, agreed to this irrational request. But once they'd taken a step into this, like, solidarity and supporting irrational, the, then when we hit the pandemic, I think the teachers, they obviously had the resilience already in themselves and the creativity already in themselves. But what the playrooms had done is they had created a community so that they communicated with each other. One teacher started using her toes showed up in her screen during the remote schooling, and the children were very excited about that. So she, who had been used to using her body to play, painted faces on her toes and they became classmates, huh. at, you know, um, or co-teachers or something. Anyhow, so we were all talking about this, about all the hard things. And it really struck me as I had teachers all over the city calling me crying. And, you know, we were trying to support each other. These former students of mine and teachers I had worked with, she called and she said, oh, I'm so happy. I have the best class. And I thought, oh, well, whatever she is doing, we have to do. And so we decided her toes were puppets and we connected to puppeteers we'd worked with before, wonderful puppeteers of puppetry and practice. But anyhow, during the pandemic, we just made puppets with puppetry and practice. And then the puppets came to live with the teachers and keep them company. And the children would mail their puppets to the teachers in these elaborate transportation boxes and the teachers would mail them back. And at the end of the year, the, they were the only people I talked to who said that was the best year you know I mm. love this year it was full of horror and I don't want to do it again but how beautiful to always interact with my children on a puppet stage and how beautiful to have these puppets and then they took their puppets back to school and then one of the things we think about is how to interact with the institutions we're in and I always just you know I have a tendency to get mad and push for revolution maybe because I was once fired, I just think it's better to quit the whole system. But um, they brought the puppets when we asked for money, and we got more money for our you, were you, you mean they brought the puppets to the meeting where you were asking? Yes, we had this meeting, partly online, partly in person. Some of the puppets are like elaborate paper mache. It was rainy outside. The puppeteers and the teachers brought their puppets they had been living with through the pandemic to the meeting and the puppets interrupted the teachers because of course maybe if you haven't worked with puppets you don't know this but puppets like say things that you wouldn't say right that's the beauty of them so they because they aren't you actually they're mm -hmm. not, not you, right for Schechner's words not not you so so the puppets said things that brought the administration to tears brought emotion to the mm -hmm. meeting in a way that the teachers couldn't do. And that emotion allowed them to see, oh, let's support this, not, not take these kids who really need to play and shove more phonics down their throat instead of supporting them in playing. Not mm -hmm. that they made an either-or choice, but we've never right. gotten that much support from the administration before. So then I was like, oh, wow, these puppets really are real.
You know, they're not only real. We should be. So we have a puppet. They're leading. <laughs> they're what? They're leading. They're leading. leading. So the puppets took over and the puppets now run a school in this school. And it's the puppet school. We used to call it the puppet school within a school. Now it just seems to be called the puppet school. I think it's because the school is within the puppet school. But we'll find out what happens. And the latest development is that the space has become a puppet. So the space is alive. The classroom that they named the Playworld classroom is alive. And the puppeteers are helping us to to construct the space as a puppet. So anyhow, we'll see where it goes. And wow, I can't even imagine. That's, that's amazing. Sure. Yeah. Huh. So in some ways, my, my last question, I think you've, you, so much of what you just said is probably in it, but what's your dream for play worlds or yeah. And, and one way I think of it is, can we support one another to build play worlds everywhere for kids? And would we want to do that? And maybe my last piece of it is, do you see a relationship between the imaginary worlds of play worlds and us and us could be as big as you want, um, creating a new world, taking us to places we haven't gone before? I don't know what the answer is. Like, mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel like um, I just have to do whatever I do authentically. And so I feel like the people, I feel like the more I concentrate on these small worlds, the more is the world this world or is the world the play world? So I really have to focus with the teachers I've worked with now for, you know, over a decade. I have to focus on this room that's becoming a world somehow i have to follow that because it's told us to and then hopefully people like you will keep asking me to talk it seems to happen and and then people contact me and want to start their own play worlds but i don't know if those play worlds will be in classrooms or they'll be in people's lives or they'll be just when they're talking to their grandmother who has dementia or when they're raising their kids i don't know what it's going to look like And of course, I talk a lot about it with all the teachers. I teach all the incoming teachers in Brooklyn College, which is most of Brooklyn. So I'm reaching, you know, you know, 100 students every year and sharing this as part of many things I share. But I'm not I'm not sure about this better world thing. I think I think obviously that's my my culture is utopian, socialist, Bundist, Jewish, um, tikkun alam improve the world so that's that's where i'm going culturally but i have to say i'm i'm a little lost about how how that (laughs) i i i like your answer better than i liked my question (laughs) well i think one of the things you and i share is be that to me is the being willing to sit in the wetness as you described it we don't know and um but one of the things I deeply appreciate about you is that you have created, I think, the longest day I see, a life in which you can be joyful with that not knowing and keep giving people gifts um, across decades. Um, and that, that, that is 
I find that inspiring and beautiful. So thank you. And thank you for joining All Power to the Developing today. It's beyond my pleasure. I enjoyed every part of this project. All Power to the Developing was made possible in part by Growing Social Therapeutics, the Baylor Wolf Fund.